Welcome to the Sound Lens Podcast. I'm Jillian Wise. And I'm Louise Fagan. And we're here with Dr. Shazma Mathani. Shazma is an ER doctor and social justice advocate with a strong presence on social media. Through her platforms, Shazma uses her expertise to share helpful and accurate healthcare information to make sure we're all informed and empowered. Welcome, Dr. Mathani. Thanks so much for having me today. Yes, welcome, Shazma. We have so many questions for you, but we would love to start a little bit maybe at the beginning of your career in healthcare. And and when did you realize you wanted to have a career in healthcare? I think I had an inkling in high school. I definitely excel in sciences. Like that is something um, that I had always found interesting, like bio and chemistry in particular were the subjects that came pretty easily to me. That's lucky. Yeah, I know. Can't say the same for some things, yeah. you know, like physics and, and writing, not so much, but bio and chemistry definitely came easily to me. And so I decided to do an undergraduate degree in pharmacology. And it was when I was doing that, that I really started to get more interested in physiology and bio and chemistry in the context of the human body. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a natural progression after that in order to kind of find a way to use my interests and my skills in a way that felt meaningful to me. Did medicine run in your family at all? Like, did you have doctors or pharmacists uh, in your close family? Not at all, actually. So I have, my parents are immigrants. They were, my mom was trained as a dietitian. My dad was trained as an accountant, but when they moved to the US and then Canada, none of those skills are transferable. So both of them worked minimum wage jobs Mm -hmm. for most of my life growing up. So I was the first medical person in my immediate family. My sister is a registered nurse. And then I do have cousins on my mom's side. She has six brothers. So there are a few cousins in there that uh, became (laughs) medical doctors as well. But it's our generation that kind of started doing the medical path. Yeah, you so you talked about being in pharmacology, and then in that interest, then diverging more to medicine, specifically to be a doctor. And do you remember a moment? Or was there something specific that kind of sparked that, wait a minute, maybe I I should be looking at being a doctor. I talked to a lot of people around that time when I was starting to think about it. And then I was volunteering at my local hospital Mm -hmm. as well. And just being able to be there. And and the nice thing about being a volunteer is that you actually get to spend a lot of time with patients, mm-hmm. which we don't often get to do as, as medical doctors now. But you get to spend a lot, of, a, a lot of time with patients, be there, be in the hospital, see how things work and see just the even the small cumulative impacts that healthcare workers have on the lives of patients on their experience. And I think that that was definitely eye opening mm-hmm. for me when I was doing that during my undergraduate degree and in high school as well. So you were doing that during your pharma- pharmacology degree, you were in volunteering at the hospital? Yeah, I started in grade 12, from what I can remember, and then kind of continued it on during my pharmacology degree, just to try to get a sense of what the hospital system was like, and to see if it was something that would be interesting to me. Were you in Edmonton during that time? Or where did you actually go to school? I did my undergrad in Edmonton at the University of Alberta. And then I did medical school at Western University in London, Ontario. So I, from what I understand how residencies work when you're in med school is like you have to try a bunch of different types of medicine before you choose at the end. Is that correct? So in medical school, we have this, typically it's the third year of medical school. So most med schools in Canada are four years. So in the third year, we have something called a clerkship and we rotate as medical students through various um, number of different specialties. So ranging from like family medicine to internal medicine to surgical specialties to obstetrics and gynecology. So we do all of that during our third and fourth year of medicine. And then that kind of gives us exposure to different specialties to give us a sense of what we might want to apply to for the residency match. And so the residency match is kind of this interesting process where you decide what specialty you want to do. So I decided that I wanted to do emergency medicine. 
And you then apply through a centralized matching system. So in Canada, it's called CARMS. So the Canadian Residency Matching Service. Mm -hmm. You can apply to different specialties if you'd like to. And you decide which universities you want to apply to within those specialties. And then you get offered interviews. And then at the time, now they're doing mostly virtual interviews, which is great. Like that was a kind of a, a nice outcome of the pandemic. But before when I went through, which was back in 2009, we flew across the country and like went to different, wow. yeah, every different program we'd go and we'd get to meet the residents that were in the programs, get to kind of meet with the attendings and the program directors and then have an interview. I went across the entire country. I did 10 interviews over the course of like three weeks. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to kind of get a sense of what the programs are like and whether it's going to be a good fit for you. And then you rank. So you rank your programs from top to bottom. And then the programs also rank candidates from top to bottom. And then this algorithm that CARMS has basically matches you. So it's called the CARMS match. And it's a a very stressful day for medical students typically. And then you you find out where you're going to be for the next two to five years after that, depending on what specialty you've chosen. Did you make it to your, like, did you get your top choice or top three choices? I was very lucky to get my top choice. I wanted to come back to Alberta and Edmonton has an outstanding emergency medicine residency program. And so I was thrilled to be able to come back. And and I was thrilled that I got my first choice because it's definitely, um, you never know. And it's definitely a stressful process. (laughs) Wow. So it's it's fascinating to me that ER medicine was what you wanted. What, What was it in particular about or what is it about ER medicine that you find so appealing. So it kind of evolved over the course of medical school. When I first started medical school, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I think a lot of that had to do with the volunteering that I was doing in the hospital. I was volunteering on the pediatrics ward. And then it kind of evolved throughout medical school where I started to realize in clerkship that I liked a lot of the things that I was doing when I was doing my general surgery rotation. I really enjoyed that when I was doing my obstetrics rotation. I really enjoyed that. And then it was closer to the end of clerkship that I did my emergency medicine rotation and realized, hey, this is this actually is everything. I get to see mm-hmm. undifferentiated people. I get to see a broad range of medicine. And there's also a really nice ability to use your hands in emergency medicine as well, because there are lots of procedures that you get to do. And so it felt like a really good balance for me as a person that kind of really enjoyed all the rotations that I was on. And I was able to to handle the shift work okay. And so it felt like a really natural fit for me. Do you think you had maybe a bit of an advantage compared to your peers because you'd done all this volunteering at the hospital, even in terms of figuring out what you liked because of what you'd seen and experienced already? I think that it was helpful for me to help me decide at, at a reasonable point in my medical school career. Because one of the things that is often a challenge in medical school is especially if you're going for a competitive specialty, it feels like you have to decide really early, which I think is really unfortunate because sometimes people change their minds. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you might not have your rotation in internal medicine, let's say until later in the year, and you might realize that you love it. And so it's the advice that I always give medical students is to do as much shadowing as you can do as much volunteering as you can to really just try to get a good sense of all the different specialties to help you make those decisions to help set you up for success. Your early ER experiences, what was that like? Did it burst the bubble of what you thought it was going to be? Definitely not quite the experience I was (laughs) expecting. I remember when like my first true ER experience, I, I actually did four weeks in Windsor, Ontario after my second year of medical school. And so it was like we had the opportunity to do pre pre clerkship electives they're called. And so I spent four weeks in Windsor and did an emerge elective there. And it was it was really the expected part was that there was a lot of variety. I really got to see a lot of different cases. I got to see a wide range of 
patient ages mm-hmm. because at the Windsor Hospital, there's no dedicated pediatric emergency. So I got to see children into, you know, mid adulthood into older adults. And that was really great to be able to see in real life, like what the variety was like. But the unexpected pieces, especially then when I came back to London and was at a trauma center, was how sick the sick patients could be. And oftentimes as medical students, we're a bit sheltered from that. Mm-hmm. But I was so lucky to have preceptors that really made a point to pull me into those cases so that I could see what it was like to see how a team functioned, to see how everything kind of comes together in a room to make sure that things go as smoothly as possible when we're trying to help manage a sick patient. So that part was unexpected, but it was cool to see that. What did you find to be the hardest part about those cases? I think it's the thing that I still find the hardest about the case, those cases today. And it's that you have to see those cases. You have to often break bad news. You have to often experience these devastating outcomes in these patients that we see. And then you have to pick yourself up and go see the next patient. And that is still something that is really, really challenging. I think any eMERGE doc would say that now is because the the, the way that emergency medicine is structured is that you still have to go see the next patient. You really don't have a lot of time to process the moral trauma that you've that you've endured during these very sick patients or these these devastating outcomes. Sometimes we are able to have a little bit of a cry with the family in an ideal situation if we can do that. Mm -hmm. But it still means that like there's still sometimes 10 or 20 people in beds that are waiting waiting for us to be able to help them and see them too, right? And so that's still the hardest part now. It was something that, that my eyes started to be open to as a medical student, certainly as a resident, and definitely now as an attending, because you know we're the ones that really often take the brunt of that as the, as the, the person that oversees all of those cases. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine too, then when you go from you know one situation to the next, every person that you speak to, they need to feel that they're the focus of your attention and the most important, because whatever's going on with them, that cause them to be in the R for them is the most important thing. And so I can imagine that would be just such an extra challenge. And I I want to be, I want them to be the only person that I'm paying Mm -hmm. attention to in that moment. It's hard. It's hard to do that. But I always want to be able to do my best to make sure that that my patients feel like they have as much of my attention as possible when I'm in the room with them. Because, you know, Louise, as you said, it's what the way that I always kind of think about it is that when somebody comes into the emergency, one of the worst days of their lives, it doesn't matter what the reason is. Some people are sicker than others. But it's always one of the worst days of their lives. And and it's an important reminder to always think about that when I'm seeing my patients. And I can imagine too, that at the same time as you're having these challenging and, and really heartbreaking moments, there must be times when, and I, I don't want to say this, but I, I would expect there are times that you feel that oh, like the wonder of the human body able to heal itself from something like have you had those moments too I would say even in training when we learned about how amazing the human body is at being able to heal itself and being able to recover from what might be devastating conditions or injuries or exposures those sorts of things and then being able to see that happen in a, in a clinical context like in front of me it's pretty pretty amazing when you when you really think like think about all of like when we learn about physiology Think about all of the things that have to line up to make a human body work and then the ability to then for that human body to adjust yeah. and um, take hits and take traumas and those sorts of things and recover and readjust from that is really mm. quite 
amazing when you really think about it. It's it's incredible. And I mean, it's easy for me to say that it's incredible because I don't know much about the human body and like how medicine works very well. So I, it's cool to hear that you even find that incredible still given, you know, how much information you have. So you're working in the ER and then you decided to start sharing medical information on social media. Like what were your initial intentions with that? My foray into social media, certainly like it dates back around the time the pandemic started. I mean, I guess I was on Twitter, like I had an account. <laughs> but I didn't really I, did, I didn't even know what tweeting was like I mean I think I put like a few tweets out before you know 2020 and then I had an Instagram account mostly just to follow my friends and I had a Facebook account to follow my friends and then at the beginning of the pandemic so you know in early 2020 when things were really scary for healthcare workers where what we were seeing and hearing about was people across the world who like healthcare workers who are not did not have enough personal protective equipment and were getting COVID and were and were dying and and we were seeing these devastating outcomes and and here I was you know worried about my family I have two young kids and a, and a husband at home and so worrying about bringing something home to them not seeing my parents who live in the same city as me because of fear of exposing them to COVID and so I I initially took to social media just to consume information myself so Twitter in particular there are lots of really the way that it's organized is often by hashtags which is great because then I can pick the topics that I want to look at and in particular with respect to COVID, I could see, you know, what other um, healthcare workers were experiencing across the world and, and what they were finding was helpful, what their tips and tricks were for things like reusing masks, right? Because there was a time at which we were thinking about that and talking about that. I know it seems crazy now yeah. to think about that, but like that yeah. was something that was a constant part of the conversation at the beginning of the pandemic because we weren't sure that we'd have enough PPE for, for all the healthcare workers. And so we were trying to learn from what was happening in the rest of the world to make it applicable to us locally. And then it became a situation where I was educating myself about COVID, but then educated myself enough and was certainly up to date on all the literature and the evidence where I felt like it was important to then have a voice yeah. mm -hmm. in that conversation as well. And not... Um, not necessarily a voice among my medical colleagues, but more a voice in the public to help educate the public on, on what was happening in the hospitals, how serious the pandemic was, because there then was this barrage of misinformation that started to occur as well, right, in terms of different medical yeah. treatments that we know were not effective, but that were gaining a lot of traction in, mm -hmm. in social media. And so being an educational voice to try to help the public from an expert standpoint understand what was effective what was not effective, what's dangerous, that vaccines are important, that they're, that they're effective in preventing disease, what public health measures are important, like these sorts of things, and really trying to not only educate, but then advocate for general public health and protection. And so it kind of evolved to that during the pandemic. And then, you know, as we've kind of transitioned out of this period of time, one thing that became really apparent to me over the course of the last three years is that people often take to social media to consume general health information. Mm -hmm. It started kind of really ramping up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes now, you know, when people want to seek out health information, it's not even going to Google necessarily. It's going to TikTok or Instagram to see what's, or Twitter even, and see what's happening there. And so because I was able to kind of foster this big following on, on Twitter initially, I decided to use that audience then to just provide general health information. As an eMERGE doc, you know, as we just talked about a little bit earlier, it's, it's a generalist specialty. I, I really have a broad grasp of a lot of different parts of medicine, which is really one of the cool things, mm -hmm. when, one of the things that I really enjoy about emergency medicine. So I wanted to use that expertise to arm people with information on different things. Like, what am I seeing in the eMERGE? What do I want you to know about? What can you do to keep yourself out of the eMERGE and to kind of protect our fragile healthcare system? And it was kind of from that angle of, 
trying to educate people to, to continue to protect the healthcare system that was still and is still recovering on the tail end of the pandemic right now. What was the initial feedback and what kind of responses were you getting when you really started to have a presence? Overwhelmingly positive. So thankfully, I mean, there, there yeah. are trolls out there yeah. and, and there, there still are trolls out there. I mean, anytime I post about a vaccine at all, whether it's a COVID vaccine or not, they come out and that's, you know, that's fine. I ignore them. But in general, like overwhelmingly positive mm-hmm. that, that this was the kind of information that people wanted to hear about. I then kind of transitioned over to Instagram, which was a much easier platform on which to kind of get my content out both in like video format and then like visual format with things like infographics. I've been able to to grow a lot there as well. And, and lots of really good feedback from parents, from peers, from people of all ages who are often providing feedback that they're enjoying my content and, and that they're learning from it. And really, that's what I want. I want them to be able to learn from it and just improve overall health literacy, because I think that that's something that's just generally pretty poor in the in the population mm-hmm. is just good health literacy. And I think that it's important for trained health professionals who are experts to be the ones that are providing that information. Because if it's not us, then it's the people who are not credible that are that are dominating the conversation. Yeah, that's definitely a, a concern and like a risk depending on, you know, who you're following and what you're consuming. But what I also appreciate about your content and how you share the information is that you come across very grounded and confident in what you're sharing and your presence on social media really reflects that. Were you encouraged as a kid to express yourself or express your opinion about things? Is that kind of how that's translating now or how are you doing that? I mean, if you ask my parents or my husband, they'll say that I'm a very opinionated person, (laughs) (laughs) which is why I'm chuckling at that question. I, yes, I would say that like in, in my family unit growing up, there was never any shying away from having open and honest conversations and asking challenging questions and having it, having your opinion about things, which was great. And Mm. then I will say that my training in emergency medicine has solidified that because it's communication is so important in medicine in general, but also in emergency medicine, when you have a sick person that comes in, surprisingly, oftentimes the resuscitation rooms are quiet because you want to be able to hear what the leader is saying. You want to be able to hear that closed loop communication between different members of the healthcare team and the person who's running the resuscitation. And so one of the things that is a big focus in medicine and in emergency in particular is those strong communication skills about being assertive and clear and calm because Everyone is feeding off your energy. When you're the person that's in the room that's running that cardiac arrest or a severe trauma, everyone is feeding off of your energy. And if you're anxious and frazzled, it sets the tone for the room. And so a lot, a lot of focus, especially kind of in the later years of residency of expressing the tone and the communication that you want to set for the room. And I think that that's been really helpful for me in the way that I talk to patients. And then of course, the way that I talk to the public now on my social media posts. You have a great presence. And this is something that Jillian and I, we actively work on for ourselves. And so we were, we just couldn't help but admire just the way you appropriately take up the space that you are in. And I think it's Mm -hmm. very inspiring outside of the medical information that you provide and all the other ways that you share about your life. It's just, it's really, it's really fabulous. But What are you hoping now at this point, as you said, COVID is over and you're sharing information. What are you hoping that the general public gets from the content that you are providing? So Louise, I know you're in the United Mm -hmm. States, Jillian, you're here in Canada. I think one of the biggest gifts that we have here in Canada is our free and accessible public health care system, like hands down. 
it is not perfect. I don't think anyone will say that it's perfect, but it is such a gift. And I see that every day working in an inner city ER of how, how much impact it would have if you had to pay for care. Or even if you had to think about paying for care, because it would become a barrier, an additional barrier for so many people, right? Because there are already so many inequities in health, adding an extra layer of, of the concern of paying for yeah. care would just, for a lot of people, be an insurmountable barrier. So I feel very strongly about public, free and accessible health care that's universal. And one of the things that I hope that my content does is empower people with credible health information that can help them make the right health decisions for them to help them understand, you know, what should come to an ER? What can you see your family doctor for? What can you talk to your pharmacist about? What can you see your physiotherapist or occupational therapist for? What can you see your dietitian for? Because there are so many members of the healthcare team and not all of them have to be doctors and not all of it has to be the emergency department. And I think that if we want to, as a country, preserve our access to, to universal healthcare, we need to treat it with respect and we need to treat it kindly. And, and one, of those, one of the ways to do that is to, to use it only when we actually need it. And, and so my hope is to be able to get that information out there to help be a part of the solution of, of how stressed our healthcare system is right now. I think it's so interesting and it sounds like you're describing your tagline or slogan, but you're staying informed on health to keep you out of the ER. And I'm just wondering, did you have any misconceptions yourself before you started working in the ER? A lot. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the one of the very common misconceptions of medical students that come in, and I, I am part of that as well, is the types of patients that we see in the ER. And I think certainly like media perpetuates this as well. It's not always super sick patients, thankfully, because we don't want everybody to always be really sick, right? Mm -hmm. It is a very broad mix of people who are less sick, uh, that certainly need to be there to have some investigations done and rule things out. And then a smaller percent of patients who are extremely sick, who need to be attended to immediately, those are relatively rare, like much less than 5% of the people that we see in the day, five to 10 at the most that we see in the day, which is, which is a good thing, right? We don't want people to be sick. But I would say that a very common misconception that people have coming into emergency medicine, or, or you know, medical students rotating through emergency medicine is that it's always the, the hustle and bustle of what we see on TV. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's not that. Yeah, Grey's Anatomy style. <laughs> exactly. It's a lot of a lot of time with patients. It's a lot a lot of it, a lot of medicine in general is communication with patients and, and their families. I certainly see that a lot on the pediatric side. A lot of it is communication and setting expectations and education of parents who are understandably worried. And so a lot of it is just having those conversations and, and providing that education and not, you know, not all the, the super sick traumas and the procedures and the crazy bombs and abdomens <laughs> on Grey's Anatomy, for example. What you said too about taking advantage of other healthcare providers at different levels, depending on what your needs are. I mean, the fact that you're sharing information that will help people to kind of decipher what their needs are in that moment, because no one likes going to the ER. Everyone in 
anticipates a very long wait that if you can feel empowered and confident in your decision to not go, because everyone's kind of like, oh, what if I don't go though, then what's going to happen? That that's, it's just a great, a great resource. I think another part of that also is just emphasizing the importance of investing in primary care. Mm -hmm. If every single Canadian had a family doctor, it would save the healthcare system billions of dollars every year. We There is evidence for that. We know that there have been case studies on that. And, and the problem right now is that there is such a gap in family doctors and, and in primary care. And because of that, for a lot of people, the only place they have to go is the emergency department. And so we can never fault people for that. If, if people are worried, they should always come to the ER. But ideally, if everybody had access to a family doctor, they would check in with them first. They would be able to have the preventative care, which is what family doctors do. The, you know, family doctors want to keep you out of the hospital mm -hmm. um, and, and not coming to see me. And so if everybody had access to that, it would make for a healthier population. It would keep people out of the hospital and overall save the healthcare system money so that we can continue to have it offered to everybody for generations and generations to come. I wanted to go back to what you said. You made a wonderful comment about just having respect for the healthcare system that that is in Canada. And, you know, I moved to the US eight years ago after enjoying the luxury and the luxuriousness of having living in London, Ontario, for example, where, you know, we had I had a doctor. I had the doctor that delivered me, delivered my son and cared for Jillian before she was born. It's an incredible luxury is really the only way I can describe it. And in that sense, my husband and I here are very privileged because we have insurance that covers it. And I think Although, you know, living in Canada, I realized how fortunate I was to be in a country that offered it. It's really when you're away and you have, are especially living somewhere else and you're living in a community that has some dire health needs that cannot be met and unless it's out of pocket, which most people don't have. Or even because it's something that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. Health, like, you know, access to health care is very much something that we take for granted and it should always be there for us. And I want it to always be there for us, but we have to protect it and we have to respect it and we have to preserve it. And I think that even something like the pandemic, it, because it stressed acute care so significantly in places that had pretty significant waves in, in Alberta, where, which is where I am, we had like our, our healthcare system was on the brink of collapse at many points throughout that two and a half year period. And that's something when you, when you realize how close you are to not having it when you need it, that's something that's also a bit of a wake up call, I think, because there were, we were close enough to start talking about triaging and rationing healthcare. That's how bad things were at, at one point. You almost mm -hmm. forget about it because it happened so long ago and now things are functioning okay. But it was, it was to the point where you may not have healthcare if you need it. That's how bad things were. And so it's not until you think about what it's like if, it, if it's not going to be there for you that you realize what a gift it is, mm -hmm. how important it is to have access to it when you need it. In terms of the information that you share online, is there in the responses that you get, is there any kind of basic healthcare knowledge that you assume or expect the general population to have, but they don't? No, because I don't really like to assume that there is any level of base. Like my, mm -hmm. my assumption is always that there is no baseline level mm -hmm. and because it's always so broad and variable mm -hmm. and, and some people have some good health literacy because of, you know, their own backgrounds or because of their family backgrounds or just because of general interest and other people just because of different inequities and different factors playing into it, they don't have that. And so my, my assumption is always that I'm speaking to someone that has like no significant understanding of the healthcare system just to try to kind of bring that health literacy up overall. I love that because it makes your content then so accessible because you don't have to, regardless of what you're talking about, you don't have to have kind of 
any knowledge about it. And that's what your content is going to be helpful for. And I always try to leave it open for questions in the comments. And I always look at them to like, if there is, uh, you know, if there, of course, I don't give medical advice on, on my social media platforms, but if there are genuine questions about things where people are asking for clarity or wanting to know more about something, I try, I try my best to kind of watch the comments and engage with people and, and be able to answer those questions and have some dialogue with them too. Can you explain what the difference is between medical advice and medical information? So medical advice is basically when I'm in a relationship with a patient mm. and my role is as their healthcare provider and I'm providing them advice and guidance on what they need for them individually. Of course, I can't do that on a broad, broad platform like social media, because I don't have that one on one relationship. And so my intent more is to just provide general information so that people can put those tools in their toolboxes mm. and, and grab it for a rainy day or, you know, when they when they have a nosebleed, refer to my video and, and see what they need to do to try to manage that at home if they can. Has there been any medical information that you've been hesitant to share maybe? There is some not hesitant per se, but some where I've been struggling and trying to work on how to make it fit mm. on the platform, if that makes sense. And so some are very easy, right? Like to try to do something in like a, you know, up to a 90 second snippet of like how to stop a nosebleed or like quick facts about a fever or, you know, quick tips for eczema or air quality stuff. Like those things are very discreet topics that are, that are quite amenable to, to reels or to infographics. There are other topics. So even when we talk about mental health, such an important topic to talk about, but really challenging to, or for me, trying to figure out how to approach that on social media. So it's something that I'm actively like constantly working on content in the background of trying to figure out what the best way is to get information like that out, because I want to do it thoughtfully and I want to do it appropriately. And so some, some things take a little bit longer than others. Can you, and I'm sure that sometimes people will read something political into something you're sharing that potentially was not the intention. How do you handle that? And, and does that affect how you present information? I am very deliberate about trying to be nonpartisan in the information that I put out there. But people will always read things into things. And that's kind of, I, I remind myself that that's out of my control. Right. And that when I put information out, I always review the evidence, the best scientific evidence. I always try to remain unbiased and I'll always try to just remain open-minded and curious when I'm looking at comments as well. And if I do get comments that make suggestions that I'm, you know, being political or accuse me of being political, I simply just state the original facts of what I was trying to get across and just leave it at that. Because one of the things that I have found, especially on Twitter, mm -hmm. not so much on Instagram, but on Twitter is that engaging with people who have a certain agenda to try to pin you in, in a specific category is just like not helpful. It's not helpful for my mental health. It's, I'm not going to change anyone's mind right. that is kind of entrenched in their opinion. And so my rule is usually like give them one or two tries to try to engage to see if there is like an opportunity for dialogue. And if not, then I just am okay with letting it go. I mean, that makes sense. You post a lot of content about fashion and food and even a lot of personal vulnerability. How do you find balancing that with the professional medical information that you share? That is a constant balance that I'm trying to figure out. I, I do think I do get a lot of good feedback on those posts. And I think that it's really important when I think about the content that I like to follow and accounts that I like to follow. It's important to have some level of relatability, I think, mm -hmm. and having glimpses into 
at what my personal life is like, my home life. Uh, one boundary for me is that I don't put my kids on social media. But otherwise, you know, I always ask my husband permission if I can put stuff like post stuff about him. And then otherwise, even just like being able to share the things that I like locally, share events that I like to go to, share restaurants that I like to go to, getting out and about in the city. My hope is that that helps people connect with me more and, and make me feel like just another local person to them because that, that is what I am. Like I, I'm yeah. just another, I'm just another Edmontonian. Right? <laughs> and so my hope is that, that I can strike that balance of getting that in, like getting health information out there, but also still being relatable and approachable to the people that are following me. It absolutely does. I love your fashion posts. You know, it makes me feel more connected to you for sure, but also gives that personal and personable side of you and your personality comes out in ways that you can't necessarily when you're sharing medical information. So I just think it makes for just a really interesting and a more vibrant presence. So you are already accomplishing a lot. So besides your Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, you are also one of Edify's top 40 under 40. Where is this all going to lead? What's next or what what are your plans? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I love making content on social media. It's so much fun to get information out there in a different way than what I'm doing at work and to be able to engage with the audience that I do have. And so, I mean, I hope that I can continue to like grow my following and continue to engage people in a meaningful way and to continue to provide that credible health information to, to cut through the misinformation. That's kind of what my mission is really is to cut through the misinformation. And my hope is that that can continue to grow in a way that feels like natural to me. Like I, I did my first speaking engagement a couple of weeks ago, which was really cool and really fun to be able to like, like engage with people at a community level in Edmonton. And so hopefully I continue to get opportunities like that and be able to have this richness outside of medicine that helps me remember that I still do love medicine. And what has it meant for you personally to impact so many people? It's honestly the best that I could ask for. I mean, I, I decided to do medicine as a career because I felt like it was a place that I could make the most impact. Oftentimes when we're in, you know, when we're, when we're working clinically, that impact happens on a one-on-one -on -one basis, which is so special and so meaningful. It's been really so neat to see that that can reach a broader population now that I can use, you know, my education and my love for medicine to be able to have any impact on the broader population, because really that's at the end of the day, that's what I want to be able to do. It was really great. That is a wonderful conversation. Just so interesting. Yeah. And, and in depth and yeah, I just, I, I just respect and appreciate everything that she shared and her whole approach. It gives me a lot of confidence. Like I wasn't lacking confidence in the <laughs> healthcare system at all, but just listening to her, like be so grounded and it makes me trust her. She's not my doctor, but <laughs> yeah. you know, trust her and almost give me confidence in myself in some, you know, I don't, I don't know what she's giving off, but mm. it's good. And I'm going to take it. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. I think you're right. And I think it's an assuredness, you know, mm -hmm. she's not mm -hmm. trying to sell anything. She's not trying to pretend anything. It's just, I'm telling you the truth and this is how I tell it. And there's something really, yeah, really the way she delivers her, her messaging is very powerful and empowering. Mm -hmm. It's just, 
Gosh, every question we could have gone down a whole rabbit hole. But just the language about how she speaks about patients and people have a right to their care, but people have a right to be in the ER and they have a right to their attention. Like it's just, it's it's not that it's not a perspective I haven't heard before, but I just feel like, gosh, if this is how the medical system is training and how doctors are and medical staff in general, how they are, how they are in a hospital, my God. It feels very respectful. Like she was talking about being in a relationship with her patients And I was like, wow, that's so nice. Or even the fact, you know, when she was like, ideally we would have time to like cry a little bit with the patients if something upsetting happened. And um, before, you know, having to move on to the next case. Yeah. I was like, wow, it's so, it feels personal and meaningful, I guess. You know, I'd like to think that that all doctors like that, we know that's not true, right? I mean, this is special Mm -hmm. for her and I know there are more like her, but. She's she's extraordinary. Yeah. If I ever have an emergency, I'm going to get myself to edit. <laughs> okay, that's that wasn't fun. <laughs> I was thinking that too. Like, I, I need you. My ER doctor. Yeah, when I- <laughs> do you have? You know, when the ambulance arrives, do you have a preference of hospitals? Yes, in Edmonton, I'd like to. <laughs> Um, you know, the other thing that, gosh, another, again, perspective I hadn't thought of was when she was talking about when she was first went on social media, she was looking for something. She was looking for community. She was looking for her fellow healthcare workers who were going through the pandemic. And I just hadn't, of course, of course, like she, she was looking, she wasn't on social media initially to be sharing something. She was looking for reassurance herself. She was looking for the presence that she actually ended up becoming, has become for so many. Which is beautiful. It feels very authentic mm-hmm. and real. It really does. Um, so do you watch any medical dramas on TV? I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy, but I haven't watched the recent seasons. And I haven't watched any others recently, but I'm curious about... You said transplant was one? Right. So in our, after we pressed stop, we had just a couple minutes with Shazma and we were talking about, you know, medical dramas and yeah, there's a Canadian drama that we love called Transplant. That's all I'll say about it because I don't want to give away the premise because that's a big part of of the show, but it's terrific and very Canadian, I feel, in lots of ways, which makes Michael laugh. He's like, yeah. <laughs> like in what ways? Like moose attacks? <laughs> well, there's the maple syrup heist that, no. Um, <laughs> the great maple syrup heist of what so year was that? 2000? <laughs> it was like recent, but no, because it deals with immigration. We'll just leave it at that. If, if you decide to watch an episode or two, I'd be curious to know what you thought. I'm going to add it to my list yeah. right now. Speaking of which, tonight is, we've been watching this series, I think it's out of Ireland, called Kin, K-I-N, and it's season two, and we're going to watch the final two episodes tonight. <gasps> and it, I just- That's exciting. I know, thank you. I just find this exciting. Like, I'm anticipating- Have you been thinking about it all day? No. It's just like when oh. I was like, you know, partway through the day, I was like, oh, thinking about, okay, you know, after the filming, then we come back and we've got the conversation with Shazma, and then I was thinking about dinner, and then it hit me. Oh my gosh. Oh. Uh, I love that feeling. I want to- I want to be into a show and yeah. get excited to watch it. Isn't that fun? I love so it. So are you into, like, are you currently watching anything? Well, Rebecca was just visiting and we binged the entire season of Selling Sunset in 
48 hours. What? And <laughs> the episodes are only like 25 minutes long, so it's not that impressive. But um, but there's 500 so, of them, so. <laughs> no, there are 11, which okay. I mean was still, you know, mm-hmm. the weather wasn't supposed to be great Saturday, mm. so we watched. So and fun. that was entertaining because it's reality TV, but it wasn't one of those like, oh my gosh, I have to watch the next episode. Like we were very excited to watch it. But right. yeah, actually speaking of the weekend with Rebecca, we played Boggle <gasps> and um, Rebecca is like a Boggle master. Rebecca is a, for those listening, is like a lifelong friend I've mm-hmm. known since pretty much I was born. So she is a boggle master and it was a real challenge because no offense, mom, but when you and I play, I often win. And so I know Rebecca, the, the I was like, turned at some point. <laughs> I was like, unless if you're letting me win all this time, but oh, that's it was fabulous. fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so fun. Oh, I'm, I love that. I love that you had that challenge and I love that you had games. I also had games Saturday night because oh. Michael's mom and aunt and cousins were visiting and we got out the games. We played dominoes first, which I have not played dominoes in years. Um. And I I had a slow start and then I came on strong <laughs> and then I like petered right out. So for a, for okay. a bit there, I was like winning the rounds and then lost. Like it was fun. really fun. So I'm so glad you had that, that game time and Bago especially. Ugh, it was so good. I learned some new words too. I don't remember any of them, but <laughs> when they appear again, you'll be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's fun. So I did want to ask you. Um, you said you were going to see. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I haven't. I can't wait to see it. So tell me. Tell me about your experience. How was it? It was amazing. Oh. It was awesome. I went and saw it with my friend Chloe, and I actually read the book again a few weeks ago like leading up to it so that I could remember the book well and they stuck to the book like they didn't change much which I appreciated and it really made you feel like you were 13 again like experiencing these like uncomfortable (laughs) things because the whole I mean the theater that I was in it sounded like it was all women (laughs) and you're watching these scenes of this like 11 year old go through these different things and like how they film it and portray it is awkward. And so everyone's chuckling and laughing because we're all remembering what it feels like to be that age and going through those things, which was hilarious. Like Chloe and I were dying the whole time. I was just like, Oh my God, this is so painful, but like in the best way. And the actress who played Margaret, I don't know her name, but she was awesome. And then Rachel McAdams played the mom. And that was just amazing. Very, heartwarming and beautiful and Kathy Bates played the grandma and you got to kind of see her perspective too of you know what was happening in the family and Rachel McAdams and then Margaret so you're seeing like these three generations almost of these women in this family in this specific time frame Mm -hmm. and I just was like, oh, this would be relatable for people across generations to watch together. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I would highly recommend. It's on the top of my list. Awesome. <laughs> love to find some cross-generate. Actually, you know what? I'm going to recommend it to my book club. I'm going to see if my book club wants to go see it. <laughs> I thought you were about to say I'm going to recommend it to Michael. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> like, really? <laughs> just so you understand. <laughs> Definitely recommend it to your book club. That's so great. Yeah. And it was so fun to watch it with Chloe because, you know, we 
we just talk about funny things like that all the time yeah. but it was really hilarious to watch it together is there anything else you want to talk about or should we wrap it up here we we kind of highlighted a little bit shazma's fashion oh yeah okay i'm just gonna say i she was in a magazine and she had on this gorgeous like pink purple pink more pink but had like purplish undertones long jacket with matching pants oh my gosh wow gorgeous 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 love that i love it and I'm looking forward to seeing more of her fashion. I think she's just got such a great, that confidence that she exudes. And yeah, she's talking, owning she just, those interests. Yes, yes. She's doing it. She is. She is. So that's that's something uh, that's something else you and I to aspire to is um, yeah. to share our fashion. Right now. <laughs> Get ready, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing because when we were in New York, we had said one of our intentions for going to New York was to like go in lots of stores. And what was the result? Get inspired by fashion. We went into one store. That's right. <laughs> but I was, be- we were getting inspired by the people around us, not by the mannequins in the stores. We were, ge- I was getting inspired by the real humans of New York. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, but I do love, I do love though, just that Shazma is incorporating that mm-hmm. in her social media presence and sharing that personal side, those interests. Well, thanks again to Shazma for for coming and speaking with us. You can find Dr. Shazma Mathani on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube. Her handle is Dr. Shazma Mathani. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, download the episodes, like, and review the SoundLens podcast, and share it with someone you think would enjoy it. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SoundLens Podcast. And for more episodes, visit SoundLensPodcast.com. Bye. Bye.